0: Now entering the
1: Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether
2: is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk, fresh meat.
1: Come on, boy.
2: So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside.
0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Dose of Ether. This is your host, Lucian, and this week I'm co-hosting with Colin.
1: Sorry. <laughs> uh, I am not Colin. <laughs> with Corey. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, Dr. Cory Petty here from Hashing It Out in the Bitcoin podcast. Uh really interested in this in this use case as well as like how this um this solution plays out in regards to other ones, and I'm excited to get into it.
0: Yeah, so we're joined this week by uh, Carl and Alex from Grid Plus. Um, take it away, guys.
3: Uh, okay, I'll start. This is Alex, um, I'm the one of the co-founders and CTO of Grid Plus. Um, before that, I was at Consensus, and uh, that was sort of my first gig in the crypto space. Been um, been at it for a few years. I'm a developer and. Um, co-developed the the phonon network with Carl here and we plan to uh, to leverage it with within like other things going on at grid plus but it's also just a standalone sort of protocol that anyone can implement
2: this is Carl Creer um, I also used to work at consensus and uh, co-founded Grid plus uh, with Alex as well as mark uh, since then we're kind of working on addressing what I see as the major two problems of crypto. One of those being uh, user interface, uh, which we address via the lattice one, which is a nice sort of solution to making crypto sort of understandable and abstractable um, to the masses. And then the other thing that we're working on uh, via phonon is uh, scalability. So, um, that's kind of an intro, and and if you want, I can just dive right into kind of where sort of Phonon came from. Um, so the Lattice 1 and Phonon are kind of sort of interrelated in some ways. Um, so as we were designing um, <clears throat> the Lattice, one of the components that went into it is a smart card chip. And on that smart card chip, there's something called a PUF, or a physically unclonable function. And maybe it was... Of 2018, uh, the concept of having sort of like a unique, unclonable piece of hardware kind of got the gears turning for me. Relative to there's something related between that and trying to not double spend assets, right? If you think about uh, a computer and a computer running code, how do you make sure that a computer doesn't execute code twice, right? Even if I have essentially a, a trusted execution environment, um. And you know, if we were talking about like RMT or Intel SGX, you should never trust those. But let's just say I have one of those things and, and I do trust it. One of the issues you have with it is even though you could maybe trust the environment, you can maybe trust the code executing on it, if I can create that system, I can replicate that system. So I can replicate state, which means I can replay something. But with a, a puff, a physically unclinable function, uh, and a computer that, that we trust or an execution environment that we trust, we can't ever replicate the state that's executing on that device if everything is sort of derived or dependent upon uh, that puff. And so that's sort of the genesis of this idea of, of the phonon network is that it's something that enables you to make it so that something can only ever be executed once and can't be replicated. And then if you extend that, that is kind of how you can enforce um, double spending rules without having to have a centralized authority.
0: Okay, so a um, physically unreplicable function is um, essentially something that is created out of the manufacturing process of the chip manufacturers themselves. So like the smart cards themselves, through their manufacturing process, they um, create some kind of difference in each uh, chip, and it's like a kind of fingerprint that makes it uh, unique, but it's also something that can't be taken off of the physical card themselves.
2: Yeah, that's correct. So the physically unclonable function is usually a circuit that it purposely is manifesting a race condition, and then the variation in trace widths and impedances and just gates uh, kind of determines how that those race conditions are won, which then will create an output that is random but reproducible. And that's kind of what a Puff is. If you want to think of it in a more generic term, it's kind of like a snowflake, right? From sort of a material science standpoint, right? All snowflakes are unique. Um, You can sort of measure their properties, but you can't replicate it.
0: Hmm. And um, this is something that's been around, I don't know, probably since the 80s. I don't know how long these chip type cards have been around, but it's one of the most ubiquitous, type of hardware security features, correct? Correct.
2: So these have been around sort of in popular use, um, at least in Europe and Asia, for about 10 years. So there's really two components, right? You have the smart card chips themselves, which are these these Java card chips, and those maybe go a little bit further back. Mm -hmm. The introduction of this Puff is a security layer that they use in the cards for the same reason uh, that we want to use them, because Banks don't want you to be able to sort of replicate your card uh, like you used to be able to do with, with um, you know, the magnetic stripe readers, right? If I had your card, I can make a copy. When when I use the Puff, um, I can't make a copy. Prior to the introduction of a Puff, you could make a copy of one card to another. But with the Puff, you can't do that.
1: Okay. Do you – I mean, is its it is – it- Strictly, this puff only on the Java card, or is it also part of the lattice? Because if I remember correctly, the lattice also has a secure element inside of it as well.
2: So the cards themselves, um, right? We call them safe cards, and that the phonon code is getting implemented on those. The lattice also has a chip inside of it that's effectively identical to the card or the chip inside of the sort of credit card. Ah, uh, form factors. So there's one inside the lattice, so the lattice can do sort of all these functions natively with its own onboard account, and then these offboard cards enable you to have offboard accounts. But then they also enable you to do cool things like use Phonon without necessarily having to have a lattice, right? Because when Phonon's actually happening, <clears throat> and just um, we we dove right into the details. So let me just give a, <laughs> a one minute overview kind of, of of what's actually going on on Phonon. Um, So what Phonon is, is it's basically, if you want to think of it in very simple terms, um, we're sending assets from a blockchain to a card. Um, That card can then create a trust relationship with another card, and it can effectively transfer the private key from one card to another. So off-chain, you're moving private keys between cards, and you're dependent upon on the hardware and the software security of the cards to enforce double spending rules. That's basically, in a nutshell, what Phonon is doing. There's a lot to unpack in terms of how you get assets from chain to a card, how you move assets across cards when you know making sure that you have trust and you don't get replication, and then how you get assets from the cards back to chain. But all of those things happen and they all happen off chain. So one of the really cool aspects of Phonon is it's a scaling solution that doesn't introduce sort of this trusted intermediary like Plasma. It doesn't require capital lockup like Lightning. Um, And uh, it scales with the number of users. So if you talk about like what is the scale of the Phonon network, it scales linearly with the number of participants, which is sort of the property that you need to get a truly scaled system.
1: So my immediate concern is the way keys are derived and used throughout almost all of blockchain right now, and that's through BIP44HD or hierarchical deterministic. So you have a seed phrase um, that gives you initial entropy, and then that gives you a way to derive as many keys as you want. And if the goal of phonon is to pass keys around, then you have a replication problem because the thing that's creating them can always recreate them. How do, you, how do you go against that?
2: So there's two trust models that sort of underlie Phonon, right? One is what code is executing on the card. And so we write the code to basically say, once I've transferred a Phonon, I'm deleting it. I may potentially be able to quote unquote, recreate that key, uh, but I'm not going to because that's not how the code is written, right? So you're trusting the code that's running on the card. You're also trusting the physical unclonableness of that card. So you're trusting some of the hardware and trusting some of the software. And those are the things that's actually enforcing in this distributed way um, all of these rules.
1: So the accountability of these things is the real key to how this, why this can actually work is because someone can't just make, someone can't interact with another piece of hardware, whether it be the lattice one or a card, um, unless it's a unique piece from a manufacturer.
2: Correct. And And each one is unique and you can't replicate it.
1: Okay. Then that's basically, you're trusting a lot in the manufacturing process.
2: You're, you're trusting the process of the puff, but remember this process is, um, happening at a reputable manufacturer, which is underlying sort of all of the chips in the global card system, right? There's only two or three, four, maybe manufacturers that make these types of chips, Um, you know, and we're procuring them from the same supply chain that the banks are procuring their cards from. So, you know, the manufacturers don't really have an incentive to sort of make malformed cards, but if they did make malformed cards, we could actually check that, right? Because if, we buy enough cards, we can see if the uh, distribution of the outcome of the puffs is equivalent over the space, right? So if they're doing something to kind of backdoor that puff, um, we'd be able to detect it over time.
0: So um, for our listeners to explain a little bit about how the um, chips on these cards work specifically, they actually, the signature happens in the uh, chip itself, right? They, they're they like a small computer, and they have the ability to take in inputs, and they have the ability to um, create cryptographic signatures with the input that's given to it. Uh, what's interesting about what you guys are doing is that you're doing more than just signing, right? Like you're actually adding um, some code besides just like the typical signature that you would uh, call on the chip for. That does more than just like the basic signature, and that's all done within the chip itself, correct yeah,
3: yeah. so I can give a bit of an overview here. Um, the way that these things work uh, we we mentioned the word Java card, so there's a there's an operating system on these these cards, and it's very, very um, it's a tiny operating system, there's a lot of constraints, and what you do. in order to write software for these things is is you have, first of all, you have to do it in Java and you have to use this framework in Java called Java card. Um, So what you do is you develop your applet and they have to be structured a certain way. And once you know, you can get it to compile, you can, you can install it on the card using a card reader. And at that point it's callable. So it's basically a program that you access on the card and a card can have more than one program um, but the the interface layer, so like if you wanted to interact with the card reader, for example, uh, you would have to select, you know, say the safe card applet on the card. And at that point, you would establish an encrypted channel just for communication between the reader and the, the card itself. And then you would be able to call functions on the card. So like, for example, um, derive, you know, my Ethereum address from from this set of, uh, of bit 44 indices, right? Um, that would produce some sort of a public key and that would be the output. So there's, there's an IO element um, and it's, it's just very resource constrained. Um, It's very constrained in in a lot of different areas and it's, it's very secure. So like all of the, all the read writes are atomic on the cards. So um, you can't, you can't like write half of a a byte array, for example. Um, And, it's just we're developing a very small applet. Um, now, our applet, the SafeCard card applet, comes from a fork of status's key card. Woohoo. Yeah, which is great. You guys <laughs> did a great job with that, by the way. Um, yeah. And what we're doing here, we it, so the, just to take a step back, Grid Plus is producing, um, we, we talked about it briefly, the Lattice One, which is um, effectively a souped-up hardware wallet, um, and it has extensible it has a card slot for um, storing keys offline on these cards and they're called safe cards. And we have a safe card Java card applet, which is a fork of Status's key card applet, right? We added a few minor changes. Uh, now Phonon will also go on that same applet. Uh, it's not merged yet, so it's not fully implemented, but that's, that's effectively what we're talking about here. It's just an extension of the, the, the like standard Java card applet with a totally different set of functionality.
2: Yeah, Yeah, one of the interesting things where they kind of depart, right, is a safe card normally talks to the lattice, right? So it's going from this very secure environment to this still secure but slightly less secure environment, and then within the context of the lattice, then that goes to sort of your insecure environment, which would be, um, say, a computer. What we've done to make Phonon work is two cards actually have to develop the encrypted channel between themselves rather than having to develop it with you know, a more robust environment, right? So the, um, the safe card is interfacing via the, say, the the lattice, right? So if I wanted to use phonon with a lattice, I would have the internal card and I have the external card. So if I want to send a phonon from the external card to the internal card, the KD1 is negotiating that, but the encryption is actually happening end-to-end from card to card. So that's how you can ensure that the... Um, security profile is limited to the code that's just running on the cards
1: so i want to ask a in the weeds question here uh just my own personal inquisition um so this encrypted channel is done through diffie hellman um based on two private keys or two public keys that exist on the cards what keys are those exactly are they the keys of uh, it's, it's not the key that's being swapped. It has to be something else, I guess, that's that's, that's married to a specific card.
3: Yeah, there's, okay, it's, it's a good question. Uh, it's a bit of a long answer. So the standard secure channel that's just for comms um, with your interface, which in our case would be like a lattice, right? And with the card, those establish a secure channel. The public key comes from the card um, and it comes from... A like an extension class that I believe Status wrote um, that is just a it's called secure channel. It generates a public key and it's just a fixed public key, right? Now and it gets, it does get rotated, um, so I think I think you may have a counter on it. I can't remember exactly. It's it's pretty low level, but um, it it's just a standard like single public key. Now cool. phone on what what Carl was kind of talking about, and we haven't really gotten too much into the mechanics of it yet, but um, one of the functions in phonon is to send a phonon. Um, so, like you deposit on. I guess we really haven't given a broad overview. Yeah, I
1: wanted I wanted to establish like, okay, this is a secure channeled network that is that is um, using smart cards or like basically really secure commoditized hardware to to communicate with each other.
3: Yeah, would, there
1: we can then talk about what the hell are they communicating, which are basically phonons and how yeah. those get created.
2: Yeah. So yeah, so maybe we should start. How do we load a phonon that's probably the easiest thing what is a phonon yeah okay
3: okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> like five steps back okay so the way that this broadly works um, at a reasonably technical level is that imagine you're starting on chain right so the one of the cool things about phonons is it doesn't matter which chain you're on we can get into that later but let's just for sake of example assume we're talking about ethereum so on Ethereum, I could write a smart contract and I could say um, I'm you know, I call a function to deposit X number of die and I deposit them to an address and all the all the contract does is it takes my die, deposits them to itself and it creates a mapping between that address and 100 die. So in a sense, this is exactly like the deposit function for like a plasma, for example. Now, what is that? What is that deposit address? Now, that was pre-generated on the card in the case of Phonon, and it was created using a nonce and something we call an identity public key. So that is that is a um, that is a public key that or key pair that gets created when the app is installed. You can't read the private key. There's no like there's no function to do that. But you can generate a derivative private key by hashing that ID private key with a nonce, right? So those things combined create a unique key pair, the public key of which gets converted to an address and gets sent to that transaction on the Ethereum chain, right? So if you have that private key, which, you know, theoretically, um, we don't know the API yet, but like theoretically the card does, right? So if it if that p- private key were exposed, they would... Um, be able to essentially make a call on that on that deposit. So let's not get there yet. So you make the deposit, you've sent it to a public key, but all that's happened is it's just associated on chain. Now you take that data and you send it to the card. Um, the, we, we don't care too much on the deposit side about you know the, the, the level of work that's gone in or anything like that because the depositor is the same one who made the deposit. So they're just playing data to their card. So that's super easy. So what that does is it creates this thing called a phonon. And a phonon is a non fungible packet of, of tokens, call it. So in that case that I just gave, it would be 100 die. That would be the phonon. And that would be associated with a, an address. And the private key. And the private key is on the card of the depositor. So you send it. And you. I think you asked an earlier question of, like, how do you prevent against replays? Um, you have to deposit to a nonce. That is um, greater than the current knots on the card. So when you make a deposit, it, it it bumps up the knots to that to that deposit knot. So you can't just like reuse the same phonon on key. Okay, so you've deposited that phone on onto, onto the card. It lives as this piece of data, and it's just an on chain. It's just an association. So now if I want to send that phone on, um, that there's there's like a little bit more involvement right because I have to ha- I have to convince my counterparty that I've made this deposit and that I hold the, the key and that I can send it to them and once I do I've deleted it
2: right so so one of the tenets of phonon in that to, to sort of unwrap that is the counterparty becomes responsible for that verification process because there's no objective way of stateless verification of an asset right so like and there's really no objective identification of an asset outside of sort of longest chain rule, but that requires full state. So, you know, maybe um, Alex's opinion of Ether and somebody else's opinion of Ether may different, right? You could, Alex could say it's, you know, ETH and somebody else could say, you know, Barry Silbert might say it's ETC. <laughs> right? So then Barry's like, hey man, I got some Ether for you. And he's trying to send it to Alex. It's incumbent upon Alex to actually verify that it's Ether and not ETC. Um, and so, before you uh, e- effectively, you know, decide to accept a phonon as a transaction, the sender will provide the receiver um, a transaction ID or an address, and then they can go on chain. They can check, you know, based off what they believe the Ethereum chain is, does that exist, and has there been a sufficient amount of work relative to the value of that uh, phonon? that I'm willing to accept that as settlement, right? So so those are like the normal things that you would kind of do um, you know, with a transaction, but the receiver has to do that. Once the receiver is comfortable with that, it then says, okay, hey, I'm comfortable with that. Let's go ahead and make this transaction. And then sort of the magic happens of creating the secure channel and moving uh, the private key from one card to another in an encrypted way. Got it. So
0: it's as if, um... The only thing that you're doing with the blockchain is ensuring that the deposits that are claimed to be there are in fact there, and that they're the correct type. So it's the recipient's responsibility to always check on chain um, that they're comfortable with the, uh, so to say, like asset that's being locked up in the contract, and they have a way to verify. That what they are receiving is essentially going to unlock or give them the ability to take whatever asset off the chain.
3: Yeah, that, that that's that, correct. That's right. So in that example I gave, where you're depositing 100 die to address one two three on Ethereum, mm-hmm. what I would do then is try to send it to Carl, and and I would send him, you know, the metadata, the static data. So obviously not the private key. Now there are two different functions. One is to just export. Um, static data, and that does not delete the phone on. So you can do that all day long until you get someone who's willing to take it. Right. So in that case, the, the data would be 100 die at you know contract address 546 to, and the recipient would be address 123. And then I w- Carl would take that data. He would look it on up on Ethereum and see there's 50 block confirmations and be like, okay, I'm convinced that this is this data is valid and like what I think it is. So at that point, what once I got the go ahead, I would um, I would call a function on the card, and this will be irreversible. So what I'll say is I want to withdraw to um, to Carl. Um, well, actually, it doesn't matter. So 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 he would send me he would send me essentially a public key that I would use to to encrypt this this data. So like it's not identifiable as Carl. It's just a public key. So I want to send. And I want to encrypt it with this public key. So that what it would do is it would take the phone on, it would serialize it, including the private key. And it would encrypt that packet using the, another ECDH secret that was derived from that novel public key and my identity private key. Um, and then what I would do is, and then it would delete the phone on from storage, right? So like that's what prevents the double spend rules is that that logic is baked into the card applet. So once it does that, it um, spits out the result. I send it to Carl along with the public key that I used to encrypt that packet. And he would send all of that data to his card, it would uh, decrypt it, it would unpack it, deserialize, and then it would just save it as a phonon object on its own. So then Carl could find, you know, Corey and say, hey, I'd like to send you a hundred die, and the process just be and it's exactly the same process. So depositing um, once once a phonon is deposited it is treated as a phonon on the phonon network and it doesn't matter if it's the first transfer like from me to Carl or if it's the hundredth transfer from you know person Z to person D it it's the same functionality you're you're sending uh, a public key just to encrypt it and then well first you're validating that, that the data is correct then you're sending a public key to encrypt it then they're transferring it out in the process deleting that phonon from their card and then you're taking it and playing it into your card okay and and
1: and, um that burden of waiting for the initial confirmation only happens at the origin at the the creation of the phonon correct because once it's on there and it lives on the network it's it's basically you you and it's been accepted by one person, you know it's been well, on-chain, locked away in the hardware-specific address for a certain amount of time.
2: Well, well, no. So so the, the burden is the exact same as an on-chain transaction, right? And your burden may be different than Lucian's burden, uh, which may be different depending on the amount, right? So it's really up to you, the recipient, at any point in time to decide, like, what is the burden of proof of work that I want to be able to see to accept this uh, this asset,
3: right? So the, okay. the short the answer is no, because there's no global state. If you think about it, the phonon network is a number of agreements, like one off agreements between individuals. So you're it's like it really just imagine passing around a $20 bill. So you're I pass it to Carl, you know, Carl, if he cared enough, if it was a $20,000 bill, he might check, you know, is this a counterfeit bill? You'd like hold it up to some light or something. If he passes it to you, I'm going to guess that you would probably be inclined to do the same thing.
1: Well, like you said earlier, I mean, it's you're literally putting an asset on a blockchain, which is how it's blockchain agnostic, and then you're just encapsulating the the ownership of that asset on the blockchain and passing that around.
2: Correct. Correct. And yeah. you've
1: done that. You've yes. done so in a very encrypted way that can only be done by the hardware itself and the, and, the, and the manufactured software on that hardware.
3: Yeah. So there's basically three major functions that are like state updates in this system. And that's really it. So there's deposit which just really copies some data to the card kind of naively because like, who are you trying to prove if you're the one making the deposit? And then the second function is transfer, which we talked about in which the burden of like the, the the receiver should always be validating something presumably, unless it's like a dollar and they really don't care. Um, and then the third one would be withdrawals. So, so in order to do that, um, it, again, the phonon does get deleted in the process from the card, but it would be, you know, obviously deleted in such a way, or, or obviously, uh, um, the, the the function. Okay, I'll just go over it. So, okay. you you call you call withdraw on a specific phonon. What it's going to do is it's actually going to sign a piece of data that you pass in. Uh, and that's where this this system becomes blockchain agnostic, because imagine like in Bitcoin that could just be a sig script, but yeah. in Ethereum that is you know potentially just a signature on some I don't know whatever piece of data, just something to prove that that the the user that the holder of that private key wants to make the withdrawal. Um, so maybe a good a good example would be like the the smart contract address of the settlement contract. So. I would just pass that, the card, the, the Phonon key would sign that, and then it would delete the Phonon. And then I would just get that signature, and I'd have to send that signature up to the Ethereum chain. And at that point, I could tell the Ethereum chain like where I wanted to withdraw to, and then that would be sort of the end of the uh, the Phonon's lifecycle.
1: Or pass for long.
3: No, once you withdraw, you can't transfer. No, like,
1: or instead of withdrawing, passing it along to someone else. Because like, once you have the ability to do that, you can just send it to someone else if some if, if for some reason I guess you can't break that up it's 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 it's, it's atomic so you can't break a phonon up into multiple photon, phonons
3: that's correct its it's atomic and it's non-fungible and once you once you withdraw it it's it's dead like it's it's no longer it's on back the on the blockchain yeah, yeah. Right. well you you could just throw away the data in which case you would have effectively burned it but once you hit the withdrawal function it is out of circulation on the phonon network You would have to uh, redeposit.
0: Yeah, interesting. So it's basically the fact that you could never extract the private key um, from the card unless you're withdrawing the phone on. And even then, you can't extract it. You're just signing something. Correct. Yes. Yes. And basically what you're passing along is a private key that's passed in such a way that because it's passed between cards that are running the same software, it basically ensures that the private key never leaves the secure enclaves of the cards, regardless of who's the card owner. That's correct. Correct. Cool. So there's this aspect of um, like how the software gets on the cards as well and um i have a status card and the way status uh, essentially has it, it's still in a developer uh, only um situation it's the status key card but essentially you set up your own card they give you a card it doesn't have any software and it's a read write java card that you essentially um load up with a private key that you generate yourself um but in order to have the phonon network, you can't just have everyone load up their
2: own card, correct? Correct. So remember there were two dependencies of trust, right? Yeah. Hardware and software. Yes. So for us to maintain sort of confidence in phonons, we need to establish um, confidence in everybody's hardware and software, which exists in the chain of phonons. So if you wanted to, you could create um, an attestation uh, to the hardware and to the software that's loaded on your card, and you could do that by essentially taking an identity public key that's on your card and signing it with, you know, Lucian's card store private key. And anybody that's willing to trust Lucian in his card provisioning process to both the hardware and software Mm -hmm. um, would be willing to essentially set up a trust relationship between the corresponding cards that have a Lucian certificate and trade phonons. Okay, Right? So before a card actually goes through and is willing to exchange a phonon, the first thing that they do is they have to establish trust. And they have to establish trust in each other's hardware and software. And so the way that they do that for us is we have a grid plus signing key and when we create a card, we verify the hardware we're putting it on, we flash the software, then we create that identity key, and then we sign it with our private key, and that's attesting to the hardware and the software that's on that card. Then when you see another card, that card will have also a Grid Plus um, signed public key, and we can do a challenge response against what effectively is a certificate from us uh attesting to the hardware and the software
1: okay so based on that sorry sorry lucian go ahead go ahead Go ahead. yeah based on that um there's no way to back these up so if you lose a card you lose the funds associated with that card correct
2: um yes yes There, there there's potentially in the future you might be able to do something to kind of well no you could maybe store something off of it but you can never back it up um, so, yeah, you can't back these things up. And that's, again, how you can uh, ensure you can't double spend them.
1: Yeah, I guess you could maybe theoretically come up with some vault that a card can go to that could be retrieved by something else other than the card.
2: Well, no, the, the, the only way you'd be able to kind of do something is right now the cards are set up where there's a limited amount of flash, right? Mm-hmm. So we can only fit about 400 phonons on a card. Hypothetically, you could take a phonon, you could encrypt it into a blob, and then create like sort of like an export store function, store that blob somewhere else, and then at some point in the future, when you free up memory, you could pull that blob back on. But that blob of data would have to be specifically encrypted by a key derived from that puff. So even though I could maybe move data on and off the card, I could never actually back the card up. Uh, because i would always need the private key that was used to encrypt it to decrypt it
1: yeah i'm trying to think of like ways because like it it limits the use case of what the phonon could use for in in the sense of like it's specifically for cash like things you don't carry around a bunch of cash all the time right yeah
2: that's that's exactly right when you think about phonon it's a specific use case right um cash is great for many things still majority of transactions worldwide um worldwide, I think, are still done in cash, right? So for small things where you need instantaneous settlement and you need low cost, like, this is the way to go, right? But would I you know, take a million dollars of ether and put it in the Phonon network on a single card? That would probably be foolish of me because if that card gets damaged, that card gets lost, I have zero recourse for getting that money back. The, yeah. Just the same as a suitcase full of a million dollars worth of dollar bills, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. It's um, it's actually a pretty useful aspect that you know that essentially like if you lose the keys, then whatever tra- you would transact with that card is um, irreproducible. So it's like a different type of security model, um, it's not necessarily for storing like large amounts of money, but for example, uh, having specific attestations that you would rather lose a key rather than, for example, having it compromised. So if you're ever protecting data that you would essentially would rather get lost than stolen, for example, it does seem uh, like an interesting model for it. Um, But for um, for essentially the um, transaction and the actual way that things are transferred from one card to another, it's kind of interesting because like there is no real uh, trust mechanism inherent in this system. So let's say you plug in uh, a phonon card into a compromised computer, right? And, or the recipient is um, plugging into a compromised computer. There's no way to actually steal the phonons off of these cards. That You could only basically burn them Right, because of the way this actually works is essentially you don't really uh, need to trust the security model of the system you're plugging into um, except for the verification of the fact that the phonons are in fact what you think it is.
2: Is that correct? So the integrity of the phonon network is not dependent upon the device that you plug a phonon card into. Um, However, if you were to plug your Phonon card with 100 die worth of Phonon and one sort of Phonon increment into a computer, and you said, okay, I'm going to pay you $5. If that's a nefarious terminal, because the Phonon card itself doesn't have a screen, you would right. just say, okay, yeah, you take $5 from me. Okay, I'm going to pin in to confirm that. And then because you don't have a way to you know, confirm what you're actually signing at that point, they could drain the balance off the card. Yeah, so now that would go to another card to do that, but right. because you don't have that display, you don't have that assurance. So Got in that. the context of the lattice, right? The lattice is a secure computing environment with anti tamper features. So mm-hmm. if you have a lattice, you have assurance of what's going on there and when you plug your card in, um, you you can um, Essentially, gain greater assurance of what's going on there. So, if you had a lattice, you could be very comfortable pinning in, "Hey, I'm going to pay you five die," and that indeed that would come out as yeah. five die. So,
3: so, the answer is actually no. You can get owned pretty easily because all they need is to have you type in your pin. Then it transfers out the phone on encrypted in a you know a, a secret that's derived from just a key pair on your computer. You decrypt the phone on Now you have the private key and then you just sign whatever shit to get it to you know no, but but you
2: couldn't you couldn't pull it off yeah so we could no so the computer would <laughs> plus card next to the level. it would because because i wouldn't interact with you unless you give me a valid cert and you pass the challenge response it's not it's not enforced at the card level
1: yeah, but you're not gonna, uh, the way I understand setting up the initial secure comms, you're not going to set that up unless you validated certificates of the people you're interacting with.
3: Uh, no, you absolutely could. So the, the reason we built the lattice was to avoid this problem, right? We want to have a secure interface. We want to have a screen that's drawn in a secure compute environment. If you're using Phonon with a lattice, this is not going to happen to you. But if you're using it with an insecure card reader, you can imagine, I mean the, the card reader is just a USB device in yeah. order to, to talk to a card. It's gonna you're gonna you still need to establish, you know, a secure communications, but you just generate a key in order to do that on your computer. Then you make a withdrawal request, as long as the user types in their PIN to un- or to unlock, you know, the card, um you can make a transfer to just like, you know, you can say it's to a to a well so, so you really just sp-
1: up. This brought up a very interesting point that I, don't, that I think we're, we're, we're losing here. And that is, um, the, I guess you brought up the example of I send you a 100-die on for a $5 transaction, and you're supposed to give me the rest. Is that th- what we're talking about? Because if I, if, I would imagine if I'm sending an atomic thing, they should be able to get the entire thing. Is there a way in which you can break these things up and, and only take a partial amount of a, of a phonon and send the rest back?
2: So there's, there's no way to break it up, but you have to think about phonon again like cash right? There's no
1: way to break up a $100 bill, but the way that we get
2: around that is we have $1 bill, $5 bill, $10 bill. We carry a set of them around. So either I can give you exact change or my counterparty can make change, right? So if I only have a 100-di phone on, we could work out that you're supposed to give me, you know, 84 back, right? Uh, Just like we would do sort of like a cash-based transaction. The other thing that's interesting about um, that aspect is that you can think about sort of the minimum economically viable size of a phonon. So if we assume that um, withdrawal transaction to chain is, say, two cents, um, you know, maybe the smallest I'd be willing to make a phonon is 20 cents, right? So I'm essentially paying a 10% fee to, to pull it back. The interesting thing, though, is let's say I make a phonon that's worth a penny, and it's two pennies to pull back to chain. Just to you know, pay pay the gas fees. Um, that phonon is actually still valuable as long as there's an economic utility to be able to trade in one cent increments. Because what would end up happening is I would just be disincentivized from pulling it back to chain. But you could think about a situation where you could essentially have change makers or some company that's similar to what Coinstar does with physical change that we see today, right? You can use change, but at some point change becomes cumbersome. So you take it to Coinstar and they charge you 10% to turn it into bills. right? And then those bills become useful. You can put them in your bank account, you can spend them. Um, you could think about sort of these non-economically viable phonons as coins, like change uh, in the real world, and that a penny is useful um, and maybe i can collect pennies over time and then go to a change maker to get a bill that's essentially redeemable back to chain in an economically viable way and they'll charge me 10 cents or 10 percent to to do that um the interesting thing about that is there's really no lower limit on the size of a phonon so if it makes sense to make a phonon on it's a thousandth of a cent for like a true micro transaction um you could do that and as long as there's other people in the world that are participating in that economic system. There'll be a change maker to aggregate those and de-aggregate those. um, And all of that works.
3: The other thing you could do is just issue phonons on a plasma chain or, you know, liquid, for example. And then, you know, they're less valuable because you still have to settle them. I mean, if, there's so there's a longer path to sell them on the, the main network, but you could have smaller denominations and, and pass those around. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Phonon is like completely blockchain agnostic. Um, it's denomination agnostic. And, you know, it, it, you, you know, there are, obviously there are limitations to it. Um, if you plug it into someone's terminal, you know, and you type in your PIN, that you know they'll get they'll get your phone on, um, and it could be a compromised terminal. But I guess it, in a sense, it, it doesn't matter because if you're typing in your PIN, you intend to send your phone on, right? So- um, They could just
2: take a different amount, right? So in general use, if you think about this kind of like replacing debit cards, you still have the same problem with the debit card, right? When I go to a store, and I stick my debit card in the slot, and I'm agreeing to pay $5 for that can of soda, red bull or whatever i'm i'm trusting that terminal not to charge me a hundred dollars it could very well charge me a hundred dollars but it only charges me five and, and we can get along with this so one way that i protect that is i put limits on the cards right so my card can only spend a couple hundred dollars a day so there's an upper bound on kind of what i can be exposed to you can do the same sort of thing with phonon so if i'm worried about okay getting owned at a terminal, I just don't carry, you know, thousands of dollars on the phone on card. I just carry a couple hundred bucks and I'm sort of at the same exposure level. I am with a debit card
3: or you could just, you know, use your, your laptop, your MacBook with a reasonable like assurance that, you know, I mean, like how much, how much do you have on your MetaMask account? right
1: now yeah that's, I mean, it's different different solutions for different amounts of money I think just goes is, exactly. is, is the way you should be handling any type of cash whether it be digital cash or real cash
2: yeah yeah the, the, sure. the big difference though between like the metamask example and the phonon example I think in a lot of ways they're sort of overlapping that same sort of trust base um, the difference being that with phonon right we get effectively instantaneous settlement and we get you know zero fee settlement. Uh, where's no on-chain, on-chain,
0: and there's no on-chain footprint at all, um, there's no, there's or no third-party re- re- person to reconcile the transaction yeah. or keep a separate ledger,
3: which is exactly. really cool. Exactly. So we made this uh, this little chart that um, some people had some issues with, but was meant to just be sort of an <laughs> overview of like how it stacks up to other L2 solutions.
1: The but smiley face chart.
3: What's that? The, the smiley face you know,
1: chart. I'll, we'll be sure to link that in the show notes. Yeah.
3: yeah. so uh there was one section that was called scalability um and we argued that phonon scalability is infinite and the reason we argued that is because there is no state size um and there's there's really no like global state that needs to grow and needs to be managed it's just sets of atomic agreements between individuals um and they're you know it's private too right so like Nobody knows if you're sending a phone on, I mean, nobody knows how many times a phone on has hopped before it is withdrawn. Maybe it was, you know, maybe it was sent to one person, maybe it was sent to a thousand people. You know, you, it's just, it's this completely like offline thing that is meant as, you know, a private scalable um, payments network, basically.
1: Yeah, cool. I think the easiest way to explain it is that you, you have a nice way of encapsulating um blockchain accounts and then passing them around. Yeah. That's it's really all it is. He's like I made a I made this blockchain account. It has this much money in it. It can't change. Now I can pass around the ownership of that account really easily through the on yeah. network.
3: Yeah, that's that is basically true. That is and that's exactly how it works for Bitcoin. Um and if you have a network with like smart contracts and you want to use those in order to like send around tokens, you can do that too all that changes then is like the format of your signature to withdraw. So, um, yeah, it's just this like cool little off chain system.
0: And, um, out of curiosity, do, uh, does the card check the certificate to make sure that like the card that they're transacting with is still part of, um, like the grid plus phonon network. Essentially, no, before sir, sending
3: it? This actually leads into a, yeah, so this is a really good question. Um, so first of all, cards do not check certs. So the, the cert checking is done at the interface layer. And that would okay. be, you know, the Lattice 1, for example, right. if you want your interface. Or it could be your laptop if you have a card reader. Okay. So and your, your laptop would just be running a piece of software that would check the cert. Now, strictly speaking, certs are not necessary for phone right Right? so we talked a lot about them they're really important for like a robust security model but if you just want to be an idiot and you want to accept (laughs) everyone at their word you don't need to check the cert you can receive the payment try to try to like decrypt it and try to load it up and hopefully it's good Um, now if you want to check the cert and if you want to be like a strict um, strict about your security the issuer of the certs matters so If everyone is is using a grid plus cert, then everyone is in agreement that the only cert uh, or sorry, let me rephrase that. If everyone is in agreement that the grid plus cert is the only cert that is to be accepted on call it like this enclave of users in the phone on network, then that's a fully secure trust model because everyone is trusting the same cert that means that the, every card in the network is running ostensibly the same piece of software because it's signed by the same entity and that's cryptographically provable now as soon as you introduce a second cert manufacturer in you then everyone in who interacts with that either in first order second order third order has to then trust that second manufacturer so um, that is where the trust model kind of can become complex. Now, if everyone's using Lattice Ones and they just reject everyone who doesn't have a Grid Plus cert, that's super easy. Now, maybe if we team up with Status and we trust Status enough to to probably do this, then everyone who's using either a Status card or a Grid Plus card um, is safe. But the problem becomes if. You know, Grid Plus or maybe Status decides to let in Trezor or someone that the other one doesn't trust, and then that maybe not Trezor. I don't want to drive <laughs> <laughs> some shady card issuer who's selling like cheap cards.
1: Shady Card Incorporated. Let's call them that. Yeah, Shady Card Incorporated.
3: Now, if Status chooses to trust them, um, that's great for Status. But but if Grid Plus doesn't trust them, that's kind of a problem for that whole group. Of users, so effectively, if you want to have an enclave of users communicating with each other, and you like want to care about the certs, you have to be careful about like how that trust is essentially um, relayed between all of the different. Yeah, and and
2: de- depending on like how you want to do it, right? Every every line of trust creates what is like functionally a little bit of a different asset, right? So you could think about. Um you know, if we just call these like phon F eth or Ether, um if I only pass through grid plus cards with that phonon ether, it's really like a grid plus on ether. Yeah. If I pass and if I'm willing to sort of trust status and grid plus, uh then it becomes a status grid plus on ether. Mm-hmm. If I'm willing to just trust status, it's a status on ether, so on and so forth. And then every time that I'm trading that, um the counterparty has to be comfortable with what that that trust model is against that ether.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Which the is, trust... once again, incumbent upon the receiver.
2: Correct.
0: And the trust model is not just like trusting the card manufacturer per se, but it's also trusting that the software uh, was, um, that the software running is also correct. Well, that's, correct?
1: that's made on the manufacturer. So it's that's... also, it's, it's, the yeah, same, it's the same no... trust, is it not?
2: Well, well, it doesn't so, have to so, be. so there's the chip manufacturer, and then there's the card manufacturer. Yes. right? So the chip manufacturer is the one that's actually making silicon. The card manufacturer is the one that's putting the software on the card. So in this world, the chip manufacturer is NXP. The card manufacturer is us. right? So we get the cards from NXP, and we program the cards. We create certificates for them. Um, so you are trusting both those things. It is really incumbent upon the certificate sort of authority or the certificate person that's making the card to attest to the software what we're putting on there and the hardware what we're putting it on when we make that attestation now one of the other things that's interesting about this if you start to think about like what is the nefarious model um as grid plus let's say we wanted to make bad software and throw it on a card what would that actually allow us to do it would only allow us to double spend with participants who have directly interacted with us. Right? So if you have, um, if you two had cards and I had a card and you two did a transaction, even if I have nefarious software on both of your cards, I can't really do anything that benefits me while you two are transacting. I would need to get one of you to take one of my phonons, which then I could double spend against somebody else. So there's a very, very limited sort of distributed breaking model. So I have to like specifically break a card and then I'm only exposed to that specific break if I interact directly with that card. right? So there's this interesting sort of scenario that happens. Got it. So basically the
0: puff um, reduces the kind of um, like negative impact that malicious software loaded on the card could potentially have because essentially the puff introduces uh, the randomness that essentially protects the deposit unless like the malicious party was literally part of the transaction they would never yeah, actually it's, have access it's
3: sort to of it like it's sort of like the difference between like a human virus and a computer virus right like a computer virus can be spread over the internet to idle computers that you know it it, it can just spread over a network very quickly with a human virus you have to physically be in contact with a person or at least in their proximity got to make that handshake yeah exactly yeah,
2: so so it's not a virus per se, but it's essentially forging a phonon, right? Yeah. So that, that forgery um, sort of has a limited reach, much in the same way that forgeries kind of happen with dollars, right? So your likelihood of getting sort of a forged dollar if you're not directly interacting with that forger is, is super low.
1: That makes more sense. Now, there's, there's an aspect of this that I wanted to get to before we wrap up. And that is, um, y'all didn't start out with any of this stuff. This is, just, you're, you're an energy company. How does that play into all of this?
2: Well, okay. So there was, there, we're just an energy company. Uh, but at the beginning of being an energy company, we said, hey, we want to make real-time payments. Okay. And we want to make real-time payments using a blockchain. And we want the average person to be able to do it. So from the very initial conception of Grid Plus, we had something that we called an agent, which was essentially a little hardware wallet. that could sit online and make payments according to rules that the user sets in sort of an easy um, and understandable way. That developed into the Lattice One. The other thing that we said at the very outset of Grid Plus is we know that we can't stream payments or create micropayments using on-chain settlements. So we need to, at some point, adopt a layer two solution. And when we started out, we were contemplating using something like Raiden or state channels, something like that. Um, But what we found as we went through this is we came up with this concept of Phonon. And Phonon, in a lot of ways, is is simpler, uh, cheaper, and more easy for us to implement than any of the other layer two solutions. Um, And so that's kind of how we got here.
0: Yeah. This basically allows you to have private keys that are always online essentially. Right? Through the lattice one, while it's plugged in, you would essentially allow for real time payments off of the card in the form of phonons.
2: Yeah, well so the the lattice, if you want to kind of think of it's kind of like an ecosystem for the lapers, right? So you have the lattice and you should think about your lattice kind of like a checking account. Uh, so it has an account on there. It's something that you share with Maybe your employer, it's something you share with your phone company, it's something you share with Netflix, right? And I can create a permission that says, hey, Netflix, I give you permission to request up to $12 worth of payment once per month. And I can set that as a user. And then when Netflix wants to bill me, they send a, send a bill. My Lattice looks at it and says, does it have permission to do that? And if it does, it just automatically signs and sends payment to Netflix. One of the things that you can do with that then is you can say that's that's sort of a service provider, but you can also do it with like an application. So we have the Group Plus mobile wallet on your phone. You can pair that with the Lattice. So I can make a request to send money from my la- Lattice from my phone. So if I want to use sort of my Lattice on the go, I have a paired up phone. I go, I decide to send money. It's actually making a request for payment to my Lattice, which then sends that payment using the account that's on the Lattice. Even though I initiated the request for my phone. And again, I can use this concept of a permission to prevent sort of exposure. So I could say, I am willing to allow my phone to request up to $200 per day in payments. Then the other side of that, on the other side of your checking account, is the safe cards. And the safe cards are how you abstract accounts and how you take ca- accounts offline. So that's kind of like your savings account. So you have your savings account as a safe card, you have the lattice kind of as like a checking account, and then you have the mobile phone. And uh, now the Phonon network kind of like cash.
0: Okay, so the you're going to have like ECDSA keys on the safe cards as well, and these are going to be keys that essentially the user generates uh, for themselves, and those are go- that's going to be like their hardware wallet, and that's the safe card. But they could also load it up with cash, and that cash mm-hmm. can be used for. Uh, microtransactions within the Layer 2 solution in the Phonon network specifically. And yeah, those keys could reside on the exact same card or different ones. Yeah, so I think you
2: usually, we're going to separate those two functions. So you'll kind of be able to say, okay, this is going to be a safe card, this is going to be a Phonon card. Okay. Uh, just because sort of the security model of Phonon is different than the security model of what you'd use a safe card for. Okay. So it, it's kind of better to separate those two functions. Mm-hmm. Um, they may get unified... At some point in the future, um, they, they could be unified. They could be
3: unified. There's no, there's no technical reason.
1: They're separate that. applets on a Java card, correct?
3: No, they're phonon's part of the same applet. Okay, interesting. Extended functionality. It's extended. So, so, it's actually, so it's actually written for them to be unified, but we are concerned that um, if someone starts playing around with Phonon with a you know card reader and they also want to use that safe card as a hardware wallet, that's that's essentially. That's, that's a bad idea, right? Because it's really two different
2: ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Phonon is meant to be cash. safe is meant to be cold storage. So yeah. it's not that you can't technically do them on the same card, but the security profile of the applications oh. is so different. The question is, do you want to do them on the same card?
1: Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. Like at least thinking about that deeply.
2: Well, this uh, the
0: safe card you can back up essentially, right? And you could also have it.
3: Yes. Well. Yeah. So- so we are, uh, we are actually going to give the users the option to make it um, backupable. I don't think there's a word for that. Uh, <laughs> when, you, when you first either generate a seed or load a seed, um, you're going to set a flag that says, yes, I would like to back this up in the future, or no, I want this to be locked. So you, you can have a safeguard, if you, if you so choose, uh, to hold your assets offline. And to essentially be like, you know, if you lose it, you lose your funds.
2: Right. There's, there's um, always going to be a trade off between security and sort of usability. Right. So if I want a higher degree of security, I can have this car that I can never get the private key off of. Right. Mm-hmm. But if I lose that card or that card breaks, like, there you go. Now, if I'm going to be using um, non-exportable keys, I should be doing that likely in an N of M topology yeah, multi-sig, and like a multi-sig, yeah. right? So if I have unique unexportable keys on three cards and I manage those three cards and the multi-sig is managed, you know, up in the blockchain sort of application layer, you know, that's fine because if one of the cards breaks, I lose one of the cards, you know, I'm still all good. Um, but it's really up to the user and up to the situation that they're in and up to the security profile that they want to achieve to decide how they want to um, deal with key management.
0: Interesting. So, um, I was kind of curious if, in the lattice's um, security model with n of m keys, would you recombine the keys on the lattice one itself, or would you rely on a smart contract like uh, Gnosis Safe to recombine them?
3: No, so we would, we would so, do it on the lattice.
2: Yeah. Okay. So there's there's been like a massive debate internally about this, right? Because Bitcoin has a very trustable application layer multisig. Yeah. Ethereum does not. Right. Right. So the debate becomes, right, with Bitcoin, multi-sig, super simple, push it up to chain. But in Ethereum, you're going to have to pull those keys out to combine them to make a signature um, because we can't have an application layer multi-sig. Um, so there's some complexity to that. Okay.
0: Yeah, uh, that is definitely something that I've heard before, especially like from Casa huddle But I think their motivation was otherwise it's not because you can't do it on Ethereum. I think they just didn't want to. So I was very <laughs> interested on how you wanted to do it. Um, and yeah, it definitely makes sense essentially since you have the uh, entire secure compute environment, both within the card and within the lattice as well. So...
3: Awesome. Yeah, we're we're pretty comfortable with uh, mixing around secrets as long as we don't persist them uh, in the lattice. So, so what we I think what we'll do to start with is uh, a Shamir split, and because you can do an N of M with that, yeah. mm-hmm. um, we'd also like to extend the functionality of using you know Bitcoin's native multisig, perhaps um, a simple multisig on Ethereum as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think the default will probably be Shamir for now
0: makes sense awesome thanks for uh explaining all of this and yeah it's uh also exciting you guys also managed to um have some households in texas that are currently like up and running correct
3: yeah that's right we're um i think just north of 1600 households uh we've put a pause on it for uh for the next, I don't know, month or so. So in Texas, it's actually really expensive to sign up customers during the summer because um, <laughs> for various reasons actually. cause balls? Well, <laughs> that's, that's sort of beautiful. Uh, but yeah, so, so we're, gonna, we're gonna start trying to grow that book um, probably when the weather turns in September or so. But for now we're, yeah, we're at a pretty pretty decent number to start with.
0: Nice,
2: congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, and the, uh, the lattices are available for pre-order as well as the safeguards. Um, we're going to be doing, uh, starting manufacturing um, end of this month, early next month. Um, so and then
3: you- we, we do need to finish the firmware. So it's looking like actually the, the we should start shipping them probably around that same time, um, sometime in September, which is what's on the website. Nice. Might get October. I don't know, but we're we're getting pretty close. Awesome.
1: I look forward to seeing all that kind of shape up and people using the phone on network. I, I like I like the idea of having multiple options for layer two solutions and using them when they're appropriate, and then yeah. also like somewhat pitting them against themselves to see which one's actually more performant under different scenarios.
3: Yeah,
0: I also like the explanation um, that you're that you've mentioned before that it just makes sense. It feels like cash when you're using a card um yeah. and that it's an easier analogy than explaining how there's a huge decentralized <laughs> distributed ledger somewhere being shared by thousands of nodes all over the world it's like not nah, your cash is literally on the card if you mess it up and if you lose it it's gone <laughs> and if you trust that the software works properly and you can check that the cash is deposited and you can withdraw it but otherwise it's on the card you use it it's yours give it to someone else, then you don't have it anymore, period.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, so, I mean, with that, I, I think one of the other interesting things that, that we heard recently with um, the, the Fed chair, right, is he, you know, made a comment about Bitcoin, how Bitcoin could potentially be used somewhat like a proxy to gold. Um, but the problem is nobody actually uses it for settlements. Right. Um. I think for blockchains to succeed, right, we kind of have this this model of, okay, maybe we can create a scalable system by using intermediaries like Coinbase, right? So everyone just like kind of keeps their money in Coinbase or, you know, Gemini or whatever it is, and then, you know, they kind of do sort of what are the settlement transactions. If we can create a system that is scalable in this decentralized way, um, it is, is sort of like truly... Uh, independent and uncensorable money, just as much as the blockchain is independent and uncensorable. But if if we rely upon the centralized entities uh, for the scaling, uh, we never have guarantees that we can actually use these things for settlement. And if we can't use these things like for transactions and settlement, then the utility you know is drastically reduced because you know the government could come in and censor Coinbase and Gemini like all day long, say terrorists, AML, KYC, blah blah blah, mm-hmm. but. If the network is big enough and scalable enough that it's just people using cards, making transactions, they can't come in and say, Oh, that's an AML KYC problem. It's just cash at that point. Right. It's its, it's own thing. So um, I'm really excited about it just from the aspect of making the technology scalable, more private and less censorable.
0: Yeah.
1: Agreed. Definitely has a lot of that. All right guys. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. it has been fun.
0: Cool. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Take care. Yep.